There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Brittany Dunn is our guest today. Brittany is a co-founder of Safehouse Project and serves in leadership as its chief operation officer. Prior to Safehouse Project, Brittany spent 10 years in international business development at careerbuilder.com. Brittany earned a BA in economics and English from Wellesley College. She graduated top of her class with an MBA and received the CEO Circle Award from Thunderbird School of Global Management. She's a member of Beta Gamma Sigma, Pi Sigma Alpha, Wesley Alumni Association, the Naval Officers Spouses Club, and is an active member in her church. Brittany served as a member of the Virginia Governor's Commission on Human Trafficking Prevention and Survivor Support. She's a military spouse, the mother of two, a lifelong learner, world traveler, and protector of the vulnerable. Brittany Dunn, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, with all those things that you do, hopefully you, uh, you've got your superhero cape with the dry cleaner this week so you can do all these things. Yeah, you know, each color every day. <laughs> so we gave our audience a thumbnail sketch of Brittany Dunn. Film the details of your life story, please. Well, um, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, but as a military spouse, have now had the opportunity to move around the United States, work internationally, and honestly, just get to invest in a lot of different people in a lot of different communities. And so that means that whenever we travel, we always have somewhere to stay that is in a hotel and a warm cooked meal and friends that just get to kind of come in and out of our world. It means that we've had just um, so many different people from different walks of life speak into our family and into our service of this country and then also into Safe House Project. So um, really for me, it's been a journey of really getting to be part of each individual's lives that we're in for whatever season and then continue on that journey. So I'm assuming when you travel, you go south for the winter and north for the summer, if you can plan it that way? Yeah. I mean, my parents are in Colorado, so some good skiing, you know, all of those fun things. And then, you know, if it was up to me, I'd probably be in Europe most of the time. Good choice. Mm -hmm. So a degree in economics and English may seem incongruent to some people. How'd you make that choice? Yes. I had a very um, encouraging father who I deeply love, who was like, if you really need to have a business degree. And I was like, but I really love English. And he's like, but you really need a business degree. And so we met in the middle. And so I did both instead. Good compromise. Mm -hmm. Wellesley is a women's college. So I'm guessing you didn't meet your husband there. Nope. We actually met in high school. So we both grew up in uh, outside of Denver in Littleton, Colorado. And then um, he went out to the Naval Academy and I was up at Wellesley and we did the long distance thing for six years before I moved to Atlanta to work for Career Builder and he went to Pensacola for flight school. So um, parallel paths, but just always a few hundred or a hundred miles between us. And what drew him to military service? 
As he said, he was one of those kids who really liked to wear camo, play with um, action figures, and never grew up. So he just never lost that heart of service. But um, for him, it's always been about how can I best use my gifts and my talents to serve other people, to um, defend the freedom that so many people have worked to provide us all, and um really how can he just continue to pursue what he feels is that next thing that allows for us to build healthier communities around the United States and around the world. So you mentioned you moved around a fair amount in the military. Do you have a favorite place? Ooh, that's hard. I'm going to go with Virginia because that's where I'm currently sitting and it is a beautiful day here. So um, no, I mean, each one has had its own um, benefits. I mean, San Diego, dual income, no kids is pretty great. San Diego with kids and a nonprofit salary would have been a different life. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, make your you and two other military spouses launched the Safe House Project in 2017. Mm-hmm. Each of you had spouses stationed in different places at different times. How did you all come together in the same place at the same time? Yeah, that was um, really just a truly a God thing for us. We um, had all seen trafficking in different communities around the United States and around the world. And um, we're all in the same church where we had a member of the congregation who is a Christian hip hop artist that was responding to a need in South Africa to build up a safe house to defend uh, or to protect vulnerable children. And he was, he launched an album with some Grammy hip hop artists um, called Safe House. And that was where his kind of journey ended with wanting to invest in this. And um, I had had the opportunity to volunteer as we moved around the United States with so many incredible organizations in this capacity. But when he decided not to kind of take that mission forward, um, my co-founders and I said, do you know what? This really is a problem that we have seen, we understand, and we want to kind of get off the sidelines. Like volunteering is fantastic and it's a great place to start, but we really felt called to take that next step into launching um, our own nonprofit. And so it launched in 2017 and has been um, moving faster than we ever could have dreamed or imagined. Moving faster in a bad way or a good way? Just given the subject. Okay. Okay. And do you ever think you'd start something like this based on hip hop? No, no. Oh, yes. He has the stories because he's always, we get on these, you know, shows with hip hop labels and things like that. And they're like, how much do your co-founders know about hip hop? And I was like, I think their names are Snoop Daddy. And he's like, (laughs) no, they're not. And I was like, that's about my, that's the extent of my hip hop knowledge. So not my forte, but I feel like I get to uh, learn a lot from somebody else who has a very different um, view on music than I do. I thought that was the right name also. So you're not alone. I think it's, I don't think that's the right one, <laughs> but it could be. See, it could be. I'm like, I don't even know if I'm right or wrong today. <laughs> it's Snoop Daddy or something else. So why did you and the co-founders choose to start a new organization instead of joining an existing one? You know, what was the missing gap you felt you could fill? Yeah, I mean, one of the big things for us is that being military families, we did know that we would move every few years. And so um, starting something local, it would have been great, but it would have meant that we would have to um, do that and then leave it potentially. And so a lot of the where our vision was um, 
came out of was just the knowledge that we had to uh, found the organization with a national perspective from the beginning so that we could continue to grow it wherever our individuals' families ended up moving. We also knew that gave us kind of a different um, perspective because we could really dive deep into various local communities and grow different um, kind of hubs in different areas and continue to see those grow and expand and increase the impact locally while serving kind of that unified mission across the U.S. Um, So that was the reason that we kind of went out on our own. Um, I think the other big piece for us, though, was that we lacked when we really dug in, we didn't see kind of anybody that was coordinating the efforts of all of these local organizations. And so in lieu of people feeling connected to that greater vision or mission, we constantly were hearing, I am the only one working on human trafficking, or I feel so isolated because I'm the only one doing this. And it wasn't that they were the only one, but they were so committed to what was happening locally that they didn't feel supported by other people, maybe who are also doing similar work across the nation. So we really worked to build more of that community and network where if you have somebody in a um, local community that you know is doing direct care and has a challenge arise, they have the opportunity to get connected to somebody else who in a similar position and maybe with similar challenges and learn from them. We don't need to spend all of our time reinventing the wheel. We really can create scale when we are networked together. And where are the other two co-founders currently based? Uh, yeah, my CEO and co-founder, one is in um, Charlotte, North Carolina, and the other one is actually still here in Virginia Beach. And I, I like the point you made about being able to be in the community that you're currently living in and have more of an impact and creating those hubs. It's no offense to you and the co-founders, but I hope you move around a lot more uh, just so you can start having more of these local communities and hubs and, you know, start spreading the word and, and sharing information. So yeah. other than the three of you, how many people do you have on staff? Yeah, we have um, nine of us on staff. So that has allowed us to really scale into a lot of communities. There's very little um, overlap of where we have multiple people. Virginia Beach is one of our exceptions. And so it is great because we have people in communities across the United States that are doing incredible work. We have volunteers um, in so many other places. And then we you know, have our board members that are across the US. So it's really empowering because everybody does kind of have that ability to go very local in their own community. But then um, be part of this organization in varying capacities that they then can learn from, as I said. And are most of your people from the social services profession or do they bring different experiences and skill sets to the Safe House Project? Everybody comes from all different areas. We It's been great. I think that is one of the things I've loved is seeing people use the unique skill sets that they have for service. Um, and so we have those who have been, you know, more in the social service or law enforcement um, side of the house or policy. But then we also have people who, you know, their background is in marketing or sales or um, pharmaceutical sales. They just know how to go out and talk to people and network into the community We have individuals who have been the CHRO of a bank who volunteers her time, you know, to really ensure that our HR policies are there. And there's just every person is so unique um, in how they approach it. And I love that because 
when we each are using our own giftings, then we can really do more together than having just uniformity across. But I think the best part of the team is really the number of lived experience experts or survivors of trafficking that are part of it. And so um, empowering them to figure out how they want to uniquely contribute to an industry that exploited them allows for them to really regain um, independence. It makes them feel like they can really shift um, the landscape to see something really bring hope out of a really dark situation for them. So that to me has been a huge blessing to have their obviously lived experience, but also matched with their passion, their drive, their education, and all of the things they've done since that equips them to have this the holistic skill set to really be um, powerhouses. So you're, you're interested in English. Your father wanted you to have a business degree. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think you'd have a career in the nonprofit space and in particular in human trafficking? No, <laughs> I really didn't. I mean, I thought that I would always give back in this capacity. I always thought that it would be something that um, I would volunteer with. But, you know, it's one of those moments when you see something that's so hard, you just say, okay, guess what? I mean, yes, I can continue to do it in these limited capacities or I can dive full in and really just figure out how to make some impactful change. Safe House Project's mission is threefold. Mm -hmm. So let's take them one at a time to increase server identification beyond the current 1% through education. What's involved in achieving success in that area and what results have you seen? Yeah, so for perspective, when we launched in 2017, Health and Human Services estimated that 300,000 American kids are trafficked every year in the United States. Um, since then, that number has been rescinded, but it's one that still opened our eyes to, hey, this is a problem that's happening. And regardless of prevalence, like that's a hard thing to estimate with a legal industry we were seeing the effects of it in other ways through our community. And so we were seeing that through mental health. We were seeing it through addiction. We're seeing it with um, just systemic issues within foster care or homelessness. Like it was just bubbling up in all these different arenas. And so um, what really drove us initially was that we saw a lot of education out there where it would be these long checklists of like, these are all the millions of things that could suggest trafficking. Well, that's really hard for a lot of people to digest and feel like they can act on when they're sitting there because they can't just use a check and sit there and look at the person across the street and try to see how many boxes. And then what is your, like, is it 10 boxes at 15 that confirms trafficking? So we really worked to bring the survivors into this conversation from the beginning and said, okay, if we're going to work to increase survivor identification above 1%, then we have to go to the lived experience experts to tell us where were they intersecting community members who could have seen something and said something during their victimization. And so from that, we have developed um, a variety of training solutions that really empower people to spot, report, and prevent trafficking where they live, work, and play. Um, and we've really tried to do that in a way that is broken down into small five to seven minute video segments where they can hear a survivor's story about one form of trafficking, and then it aligns to the signs and indicators. And so that's called On Watch. It's available at imonwatch.org. It's a free one hour training. 
But of course, it doesn't stop there. Then we work to do that in the healthcare sector with our healthcare professionals, and that's a more intensive training. And then we do that through law enforcement training or with educators or other frontline response types individuals. So it kind of continues to um, increase kind of the demand, depending on who we are that we're trying to train. But at the end of the day, I think it's just the kind of the adage that you need a million eyes on a problem in order for prevention to even be possible. And so um, as we make people more aware, as people feel more empowered to report suspected trafficking, then we can really enter into prevention ultimately and start to see those signs of grooming earlier, start to help notice vulnerable kids, really help break these cycles of abuse that exist. You mentioned these training videos and in, in, uh, the segments talking about first responders, things like that. Do you go out and give talks to schools or community centers or churches? Yep. All of the above. We've trained over 250,000 people um, in the past five years, and it's through a variety of different ways. And it's been probably the most enjoyable part because it's also the place where you have people come up and you have people who maybe are survivors who are like, thank you. Like I didn't have the words to put to what happened to me, or I didn't know there was anybody else like me, or if only fill in the blank had known, maybe it would have ended sooner. And so there's just a really, um, I think beautiful healing process that comes from awareness and people feeling like their story is being told in an ethical way. And again, for our viewers and listeners, what's the website for the video segments? I am on watch. Awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So what are the signs of human trafficking and are there ways that ordinary citizens can possibly spot someone who's a trafficker or being trafficked and help out? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's definitely a lot of signs and indicators. So we do encourage you to go look at the on watch videos because it breaks it down. As I said, like it looks at familial trafficking. So kids that are being trafficked by a family member and how that might manifest, which would be different than if you have a boyfriending situation where you have more of a, um, what might be perceived as a domestic violence type situation in normal world. So it can vary, but I think some of the big ones that we have consistently seen for us is um, those mental health indicators can be very high, whether it's people who are very dissociative, meaning they kind of check out and kind of appear aloof. Um, it is the, um, suicidality or suicidal ideation. It comes through with, um, other personality disorders. And so you can kind of see those effects, just the rise in depression, complex PTSD. I mean, we all know mental health is a significant challenge. Well, then you overlay that maybe with other physical indicators like bruising and multiple stages of healing, um, certain types of tattoos, any sorts of, um, and the tattoos would like suggest branding or ownership. Those might be present. You also will see oftentimes that, um, you will also see, I guess, then that they kind of will have multiple cell phones, their clothing won't be appropriate for the weather. So you kind of can kind of see the physical indicators, but then you also need to kind of check those mental and behavioral indicators as well. Um, parents, I would say if you have a child who's really outgoing and really sociable, and then you see a massive personality shift in a direction of, you know, all of a sudden not wanting to hang out with the friends, distancing themselves from family, um, kind of feeling like there's a layer of shame and guilt that they, uh, that you perceive they might be carrying. 
just some of those things to start noticing and kind of maybe lean into that child and try to understand what might be going on on in the background that might be informing those behaviors. And if we do see something like you mentioned, how should or shouldn't we intercede or get involved? Yeah. I mean, if it is an active trafficking situation and it is third party and you do not know the situation, we do not encourage you to try to intervene, but rather call law enforcement if you can tell it's an active situation. If it is um, something where you kind of walk away and you go an hour or two later, that still isn't sitting right with me because we've all had those encounters, whether it's in an airport or in a hotel or at a truck stop or, you know, on the beach, doesn't matter, you know, we always recommend at least reporting those tips to the National Human Trafficking Hotline because they aggregate all of those and create patterns for law enforcement. Um, if you find, you know, that those two aren't available or not aren't the best pattern or not pattern, but aren't the best um, option, and you have somebody who you have built a rapport with, and you know that they might be coming into your church or you've built um, a relationship with them because they're a, an individual that you're a friend with you can always call us and we will assist with um, survivor services and just making sure that they feel connected into those options. And so that's also to say that not all of those will be active trafficking situations anymore. You might have somebody who identifies to you who said, I got out of this situation a year, two years ago, but it's still something that's really impacting my life. Like what are, what can I do? Then we're definitely here to help. A few minutes ago, you mentioned familial trafficking. We had a guest on about a month ago who uh, was sexually abused by a relative through marriage. It's not quite the same as trafficking. My wife and I have three kids. What goes? What type of person has to be? Is it going to be to, to be a, a trafficker of somebody in your family? Besides the scourge of the earth, <laughs> right? I'm like, it's hard to even wrap your mind around it. To be honest, completely. You think through and you're like, okay, the average age of an individual is first trafficked is estimated around 12 years old, but so often that child sexual abuse starts so much earlier with familial trafficking. So you're looking at individuals who have really experienced horrific things from a really young age and that behavior has been normalized. And so child sexual abuse is not new and really trafficking is just a further iteration of that where now they're capitalizing on what has always been there. And so it's really hard to um, divorce those anymore. Um, There's just a very strong correlation between those who experience early child sexual abuse and those who are vulnerable to trafficking later in life. And so, um, you know, oftentimes it is to meet basic necessities or it's to help feed an addiction of a parent or something along those lines, or it could be that it's a, um, family member through extension, like an aunt, an uncle, a sibling, you know, and so it isn't always going to just be the parents, but it's really just evaluating who are safe people in your in individuals' lives and how are the how's that individual responding to them and what is kind of their demeanor around those individuals. It's a sad day in society when you have to see who's a safe family member. Right. It's a concept I can't fathom. Yeah. So you've also said that to stop trafficking or identify people in trafficking situations that you have to be as creative as the traffickers themselves. Mm-hmm. One, one creative approach involves the pest management industry. What are you doing with those professionals? Yes. Yeah, so we have a great partnership with the pest management industry to uh, train their tech to signs of child exploitation within the home. 
So that is really powerful because it can spot signs of child sexual abuse material being created behind closed doors through a group like the pest management um, technicians who go into 20 to 30% of households on an annual basis, then we really have an opportunity to increase identification and maybe get to these individuals sooner than not allow it to go on for years. So that's where we've really seen a lot of opportunity is with any of those in-home service providers to just be creative in our solutions. That's brilliant. The second part of the mission to serve survivors as they are exiting their trafficking situation. Your success in that area, in part, is because you haven't attempted to reinvent the wheel or create a bricks and mortar solution of your own. Instead, as you mentioned before, you focused on leveraging the resources of the network that combats human trafficking. Mm-hmm. How did you develop that? How's that working? Honestly, it's not something I think we could create again if we tried. It's one of those things where when you are serving people well and doing what you say you're going to do, your name goes out in front of you. And so I think the most um, viral aspect of our emergency program has been survivors themselves who pass our number to the next survivor that they know is still trapped in that situation. And like it it just feeds through because so often there are um, maybe services that aren't rendered as well as they need to be. And so when those survivors reach out and they're um, met with services that don't really meet their needs, they're reluctant to try again because they don't know who they can trust. And so for us, it's been really empowering to see them come through and self-identify to us and say, hey, I need that help. I need those services. And so that's been a huge part of how we've served um, survivors in emergency capacity But the other side of that is as we've trained, you know, the frontline response teams, educators, they're then calling us and saying, hey, I have somebody who's coming through our emergency department. She is a victim of trafficking. We need assistance on how to help her navigate getting into an emergency safe house program. Can you help with flights? Can you help with hotels? She doesn't have clothes, you know, and so we really step in to help um, shepherd her, the trafficking survivor through the next phase of exiting their trafficking situation. And so we rely really heavily on our partnerships and just that network um, to help anybody who identifies anywhere in the country. We really will go to all lengths to really ensure that they can get out of that situation. And Safe House Project also has a global reach, not just here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Tell us how Nigel Anderson got involved and what he's done. Yeah. So Nigel is our resident hip hop artist and he's awesome. So he had started with a group out of Soshangube, Africa, uh, South Africa. Um, and that has a safe house that we um, just continually to continually help provide for because it was that cornerstone project that really got us off the ground. And so we'll always have a heart for the work that um, Curis is doing down there. And we got to help last year in taking our on watch videos and localizing them more for um, the African market. So now they are doing that through a series called Courage to Care. And so just seeing a lot of the training content be repurposed to go international has been amazing. And finally, the third component of the mission is helping people to get on board with prevention. Walk us through that effort, please. Yeah. So a lot of where we want to see things go is ultimately eradication. And that comes down to how do we prevent trafficking and prevention is, you know, primary prevention is stopping it before it starts, but secondary and tertiary prevention would be how do we make sure that safe houses are there that really help 
needs of survivors when they're exiting their trafficking situation to get them the healing that they need to break cycles of victimization. And so we really work to, as I said, increase that identification um, for prevention purposes as well, but also to ensure that the safe houses um, are there to really serve anybody who's seeking to exit this. And when we can do um, prevention and treatment, that is the key to success for eradication. We've been talking to Brittany Dunn, and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Brittany Dunn. Brittany is a co-founder of Safehouse Project and serves in leadership as its chief operations officer. We've been talking about the organization and its role in combating human trafficking. The public policy component includes a push for passage of a federal measure, HR 6552, the Frederick Douglass Trafficking Victims Prevention and Protection Reauthorization Act of 2022. It passed the House in July and is awaiting Senate action. Is there anything that the people in our audience can do to help with that effort? Yeah, so we were really excited because it took over a year to get HR 6552 um, into onto the floor for a vote this past July. But when we were finally get it, able to get it through those six committees, um, it passed with an overwhelming um 
support of over four, or 401 yeses to 20 noes. So as you can tell, this is very bipartisan legislation. It's one that um, really people can get on board with because it really goes to uh, support survivors through uh, safe housing, all the things that we've kind of talked about. It works to increase the prosecution of traffickers and buyers. And then it's really keen on the prevention pieces. And so um, collectively, that bill has about a billion dollars in funding over the next five years for domestic and international initiatives to uh, combat trafficking. And so that was really exciting um, to see it pass, but now it needs to get through the Senate. And so we are um, really hopeful that maybe it will get through before January, but you know, it's always um, beneficial for people to just voice to their congressional members, their support of these key pieces of legislation. I think the other big thing is we all know it's midterms and you know, to do your due diligence, learn about your legislators, learn about the people at your local, state, and federal level who are um, advocating for the issues that you care about. And I think when we do that and we really invest the time into understanding who is going to support the causes that mean the most to us, then we see um, change come on those issues. And so more than anything, it's just, I think, if when we all do that piece, it really, it shows um a desire for change and a willingness to grow. And you said there were 20 members that voted no? Yes. So to your point about being midterm elections and all the lawn signs are popping up in my neighborhood. So we're at that, you know, ninth inning stretch for them. There's of them in there. I feel like, I feel like the, all the yards are filled. Uh, I don't know who they're voting for. <laughs> well, I think I'm gonna do a little research on uh, HR 6552 to see who voted against it and put their names out there in our social media publicly so that their constituents will know who they are, because I'm pretty sure this is something they'd want to get behind. I don't know why they voted no. I don't know if there's an earmark in there, uh, but quite frankly, that's garbage that they voted no. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think I'll do a little homework uh, this week for you on that one. And is there other legislation at either the state or federal level that you're advocating for to help people get caught up in trafficking or legislation or funding that should be approved? Yeah, I think that, you know, each state has a body of legislation that varies, and some states are doing extremely well on practicing legislation that's effective. Other states are pretty far behind. And so, um, in general, uh, we really seek to see legislation passed that requires training for healthcare professionals, for educators, for those who are intersecting, intersecting trafficking victims at a higher rate. Similarly, how can we make sure that there is funding allocated to the services that they will need once identified and um, make sure that those are going to organizations, honestly, who are doing really high quality work in survivor care? I, I think one of the trends that we have seen that is most concerning over time is just the number of local pro or organizations just tack on human trafficking as a kind of quote unquote program, but never really go through programmatic training to serve this population. And that's really dangerous because if you don't know how to serve this population well, you really risk re-victimizing them. And so um, in 2021, we launched our national safe house certification um, program, which really works to go in and evaluate safe house programming or anybody providing residential care to survivors on how well they are um are using evidence-based or promising practices in their programmatic elements of their program. How sustainable are they? Because those are really key to making sure that we have long-term solutions that will serve people well. 
and avoid um, people getting hurt. So those are probably the two biggest things that we um, have seen. But obviously, we we are definitely seeing the increased need for prosecution. There are states where, you know, parts of buying are still misdemeanors. And so it is just a lot of discussion around where is the legislation currently, but more importantly, where does it need to go? And so uh, Shared Hope International does a great job of rating some of the child laws. Um, you know, we run the Trafficking Survivor Equity Coalition, which is comprised of over 500 organizations, advocates, and stakeholders combating this issue around the residential piece. So there's a lot of ways to get involved on the policy side. It just depends on kind of which piece of it you want to tackle. Human trafficking takes place in the shadows of society, so it's got to be difficult to know its full scope. But can you quantify some of the numbers for us? I will do my best. Uh, yes, but it is a legal industry. I think, as I said, like 2018 Health and Human Services estimated 300,000 American kids trafficked. Um, you know, that's been rescinded. I would say anecdotally, it's a lot larger, I think, than we even recognize. I mean, I was on with a gentleman earlier who just is like finally connecting the dots between what's happening with sextortion and sexting and how that can lead to trafficking or recruitment on the gaming console. All of us are become much more aware of how prevalent predatory behavior is in the online space and how easily that can then tip over into the illegal space or not, they're all illegal, but into um, full-blown trafficking. Um, but we were at the United Nations last week with the World Health Organization, and globally, they are now estimating that we've seen a rise since COVID from 24 million people globally to 27 million trafficked globally. Um, but vi victim identification is at around 90,000. So here, when we started, we thought it was about a 1% identification rate. And right now we're sitting at about 0.32%. So we're actually going in the wrong direction due to the just increase in propensity. You started in 2017. What was your vision for the organization at the start? And did you think you'd ever develop the reach that Safe House Project has, or at least develop it in such a short time? I think we started. We knew we wanted to go national, as I said, but beyond that, we, we needed to use our gifts for service. And our entire growth strategy been okay. Let's assess the landscape, see if anybody is doing this. How is that being received? What are the outcomes? And a gap that really wasn't. Um, producing strong outcomes. That's really where in that first year and a half, as we were assessing every all the work that was being done, those are the areas that we lead into, we leaned into to create our programs. And so I think because it was such a blue ocean strategy at that point, we were taking or we were leaning into parts of the industry that had a need. And then there were people on either side that we were linking those chains together. And so I think that's really what allowed it to grow as quickly as it did, or as it did, because we weren't trying to replicate what our partners are doing really well. There's unbelievable people in this space. And so when we all link arms, then we're just so much more effective as a networked together group than we are as individual organizations. And so um, I think that's just continues to be the vision that we cast before is how do we unite communities to end child sex trafficking by 2030? Well, the only way we do that is by everybody doing their part and everybody doing their part either locally at the state or federal level in whatever organization they want to do it with. And that's the piece like 
we don't have ego or pride in this. We just want people to be part of it. You talked about applying the data side to the social justice issue. So there are more strategic solutions and recommendations to attack this crisis. Mm -hmm. Your dad would be very proud of you with that business side of your, your thinking of your brain. You know, he knew better. <laughs> I won't Don't we, tell him. We won't tell him. I promise we won't. Thanks. But what sort of solutions can result from that approach? I think what's so important, so I, in my other life, you know, got to do mergers and acquisitions and everything that we did, we were, you know, starting with a hypothesis, brainstorming, creating our outcome or our predicted outcomes, and then measuring against those. And that doesn't change just because you're in the nonprofit space. We still have to work very hard to understand who it is, what is our program? What are the defined outcomes that we believe we're striving towards? How successful is that and measure that? And when we do that, what we've found is that we've been able to aggregate a lot of data at both the national and local level about who is trafficking really affecting, what are the deepest needs? So when we are looking to help partner launch or fund new organizations locally, we're looking to meet the needs of where the deepest gaps are. Because if we have a lot of individuals coming in as young um, survivors who are pregnant, then we need homes that can support not just that survivor, but that baby as well, or see them through that pregnancy and break cycles of generational abuse. And so without knowing that from the data collection side, we wouldn't know where to forecast how to invest dollars most strategically to meet what we believe is the um, greatest need of the survivor community. So that has been really important just to help us feel like we're on the right path to creating new um, opportunities, I guess, for survivors. And beyond your belief in the importance of data, you've also said that we can create a stronger light by uniting lots of little lights. Yes. Put that analogy into perspective as you describe Safe House Project's tremendous success in such a short time. Yeah. I mean, when we started, we really made ourselves students of the industry. We talked to hundreds of organizations, survivors, advocates, task force heads. Like We just really went out and we said, we don't know what we don't know, but we want to learn and we want to learn. It's about surrounding yourself with the smartest people, not having to be the smartest person in the room. And when we did that, we found so many people who had incredible impact and incredible knowledge on certain things. And then we were able to say, okay, did you know so-and-so is doing this extremely well in this market? And we were able to transfer that information over to states and see somebody launch something similar in a fraction of the time to what the original project took to get started, maybe in this state. And so by doing that, you just create this network effect where you're decreasing the learning curve for everybody involved and you're sharing knowledge and best practices. So through that, you have um, just streamlined activities. You can create scale faster. You help bridge all of these pieces. And then the survivors are looking at us. We have a movement of people who care about us. We have a group of people that we can, that are there to support us. They're not relying on one individual, one organization, one um, law enforcement entity, whatever it might be to be the linchpin for success in their story. And so I think that's what's so powerful is that when we have these multiple multidisciplinary teams or these network effects, that really we can come around and support people more holistically in their healing journey and meet their individualized needs. Has the scope of human trafficking grown in the past decade or so? 
or are we just more aware of it now thanks to the efforts like the Safe House Project? I think it's both. I mean, I think that the I think that COVID did a disservice to us in this capacity, just because so many more individuals were trapped online. And so the um, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children saw a 90% rise in cyber um, tips for exploitation. Like we've seen it come out in other indicators that we saw massive rises. Like I've seen them reported anywhere from, you know, a 40% rise in trafficking to a 65% rise, you know, and whatever the number might be, I think what we are seeing is that we're more aware, like people are seeing this and they're understanding the difference between trafficking now being only involving international um, individuals flowing into the United States or that it's only happening overseas. We're starting to awaken to the idea of like, no, 70% of um, individuals who are victimized in the United States are Americans in their own community. They're not going to leave their community while being trafficked. So how do we help really serve locally, invest locally to build healthier communities? And I think that awareness is so key because if you don't understand your enemy, then you can't create a strategic solution to combat your enemy. And so that I think is one of the biggest steps we have to take is softening the ground to really um, understand what it is that we're fighting and put a strategic plan in place. Strategic solution to combat your enemy. I love that. Uh, I I think even listening to what your husband talks about a lot. Uh, but that's, I mean, this is a war, right? It is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's full on war. And you just a moment ago, you mentioned the stereotypes about it happening, not in my neighborhood or only internationally. There's another stereotype or a myth that people are only trafficked at large events, like when the Super Bowl is in Los Angeles or Atlanta or some other big city or city motel or truck stop. What's the truth about where trafficking happens? Happens everywhere, every single zip code, every single community. It happens for a variety of reasons to a variety of individuals. We're all vulnerable. And it's not that traffickers are only exploiting those who have a persistent vulnerability. They're just waiting for your vulnerability to surface and exploit it. So you can have a moment of vulnerability that's only a few hours long, but if they're there and they have the opportunity to exploit you, they're going to figure out how to do it. And so it's just, it's really comes down to, we have to be aware of the tactics of predatory behavior around us. It's force, fraud, and coercion. And, you know, it, we all see it come through in other ways. Like you look at the banking system, you look at, you know, our schools, like every area now has an element of um, an intersection between illegal and legal industry. And so we just have to really go back to what can we do to create healthier communities, to equip our to empower the next generation, to have a strong sense of self, to know how to ask for help and create um, those ways that we can really strengthen each other. How are children and young people typically drawn into human trafficking situations and how can we help keep them safe? Yeah, I, I, I mean, we touched a little bit like familial trafficking is unique because it's going to start with early childhood sexual abuse. And so I'm going to kind of leave that one off to the side because that's such a normalization within the home long before maybe somebody else can recognize it. But when you're talking about maybe that more um, 12 to 14 year old age span of kids being targeted into trafficking Oftentimes that's starting with some level of predatory behavior in the um, online world. 
It is sexting between kids at school and then being blackmailed um, for sending nudes. It's extortion for sharing images online with somebody you don't know who then tells you, well, you need to do, I know where you live. I know where you're applying to school. I know your dad's job. I'm going to ruin all these parts of your world if you don't do the next thing. And that escalate into trafficking. Um, for boys, we see the gaming console as a very um oftentimes like one of those predatory grounds that's often used because they're sitting there on the device and so are girls, but it's just where we've seen the recruitment of boys more heavily and they're being fed the narrative that they want to hear the, you know, oh, you don't have friends at school. Your parents don't listen to you. They don't get you. And they're building a different relationship with your child without ever coming through your door. And so we have to just understand that Technology is a tool that can be used for good or evil, but we as parents need to put the guardrails in place to help um, help our kids really understand how to use that tool effectively. Same way that we help them learn to drive for a year before we hand them the keys, we got to understand how we can um, strengthen them before we just hand them over into the digital world. So I would say that's a huge piece of it, but then also teaching them what is healthy and unhealthy relationships within um, boyfriend, girlfriend type relationships, you know, modeling that for them, helping them understand what is healthy behavior, what are healthy expectations from somebody else about how, you know, you go about your time and you allocate your resources and all of those things. And so it's a lot of strengthening of self and slowing down to have those intentional conversations with our kids. I'm showing my age here because I would have never thought about the digital world or the technology world being part of the recruiting process. You know, I'm thinking of your typical unmarked white van with no windows pulling up and offering a candy bar. And you're talking about something much more deeper than that and broader and a wider net to cast. And that's quite honestly frightening. Yeah. Yeah, we the white vans, sure. Everybody should always probably still be worried about the white van, but it isn't. Like I we see a lot of the posts on social around, you know, target parking lots or zip ties or and I'm like, sure, that could actually lead to abduction. That could lead to a lot of nefarious activity, but that in and of itself doesn't necessarily suggest trafficking. It just suggests somebody who's trying to most likely abduct your child or get money from you or extort you in some other way. I'm more worried for my kids' safety online than I am necessarily um, in those direct circumstances. Not saying it can't happen. It's just, I think we need to widen the aperture of where we believe this can happen so that we're not missing the signs in other areas outside of the physical realm. And what is the main driver of human trafficking? Is it purely money for sex or is it more complex than that? I think from the trafficker side, it comes down to greed and power. And it just depends on which one they're trying to acquire. If it's money and it's greed, then they're going to use that as a, a profit driving business, the same way that they've sold, you know, drugs or arms or any other kind of product line as they so often refer to it. Humans are just one more um, element of that. But when we look at the power and control side of it, I think those are the ones that get a little bit more um, nuanced, I guess. And why is it being able to exert control over the victim? Is it being able to exert control over somebody else? When you look at more like the Epstein worlds of this, where you can say, okay, um, he knew who had engaged with, you know, with a minor. And so now he had something over people that nobody else did. And so those pieces are a lot more, um, 
intense and I think dark in their own ways where and harder to understand kind of the frame, the mindset of the individual. So, um, yeah, I think it's just a, a dark world in the side, in the minds of traffickers and it's very hard. What keeps you motivated to keep doing this? I mean, you just said it's a dark world. How do you keep going? We get to be on the hope side. I mean, I know it is such a dark issue and people all the time are like, you're trafficking. I'm like, they're like, how do you do it every day? And I'm like, every day I get to wake up and I get to see survivors who walk into our virtual office, um, you know, and they get to share. I just gained, I regained custody of my child, or I finally got my social security um, back from my trafficker. They're not getting that money anymore. I am pressing charges against this person. I, for the first time ever, I got to um, ride an ATV. I mean, you'll—it's just a little bit of everything. But they're getting to learn to be do life again, to have dreams, to imagine what life is outside of trafficking. And I think that's what I love. I love seeing that um, for them. I love seeing the survivors. Honestly, sometimes they come in and they go, "Nobody else knows this, but I'm a survivor of trafficking." Well, she's also the nurse, or she's also a doctor, or she's also a lawyer, or she's also a police officer. And she's not, or he or she is not wearing the cloak of, I am just a human trafficking survivor. They're saying, I had this happen to me, but my past is not my who I am. And this is all the things that I've done, in, despite what has happened to me. And so I just think that's inspiring. I mean, I get to live every day on with people who have experienced miracles, who inspire others, who fight for justice and are willing to step into hard situations to see other people get to exit those hard situations. And so at the end of the day, I don't think there's anything better to do with my time. And it gets me going every day. Like I said, the start of the show, you're wearing your cape and you're going out in style here as a superhero. Brittany Dunn, thank you so much for being us today. No, thank you. This was great. We really appreciate you. And if you'd like to get in touch with the Safe House Project, you can send an email to info at safehouseproject.org or call 202-596-2073. Again, that's 202-596-2073. We're out of time. I'm Chris Meek. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.